The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, church. Welcome. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And man, we're really glad you are worshiping with us. Uh, Happy New Year. Hope you had a good Christmas and New Year break. Hey, and listen, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, I would love just to fist bump, say hi. After the service, I try to hang out. And before the service, I try to hang out in the lobby. If we haven't had a chance just to say hi face to face, come over and say hi. And if I look at you like I don't know you, but we've met like nine times, it's, it's the mask. It's not my fault, I promise. Just reintroduce yourself and show me some grace. But I really do want to get to know you. Uh, we have, uh, we've been kind of over, all over the map over the last several weeks in, in what we've been teaching. We began in November a series in Genesis. We were looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And then as we got into December, we paused that series. We went into an Advent series preparing for Christmas. And then last week, if you were here, we had kind of a one-off sermon uh, as we just look at the core values. We've been journeying through the, our core values as a church over the last five or six weeks. And we had a chance to look at what our core values are as a church and what does it mean for us to be missionally focused. And I'd encourage you, honestly, if, you, if, you're, if you're a part of Heritage or you're considering making Heritage uh, your church home, I, I would really encourage you, if you haven't, if you didn't catch last week's message, just to go back on the podcast or on our YouTube uh, channel and check it out. It's important because it lays some foundations for, for where we really see God leading us as we move forward. And it really answers a lot of those questions about who we are. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you're here today. I'm glad for those of you that are here in the sanctuary. I'm glad for those that are around campus. And honestly, I'm really mindful today of the folks that are tuning in online. I've had a couple conversations with some of the folks that are, are just compromised. Uh, health issues, lung issues, uh, sicknesses, illnesses that have really, they really, really, really want to be here. They've told me, I really, really, really want to be there. I just right now can't risk it with what's going on in my life. I just want to tell the people who are at home, uh, you know who I'm talking to, like I, th- thank you for staying connected to Heritage. Thank you for not giving up on us, even though it's difficult to tune in from home and from out of state. I'm really glad that you're tuning in this morning. Uh, the last thing I want to say as a preamble before I hop right into the, into the text is, you know, we, we, we want to stay in touch with you. And if, if you're at a point where you feel like having a conversation with a staff member would be helpful, if you're at a point where you want to get plugged in, you're just not sure how, how to serve, where that might look, um, I, I'm just going to give you my email address. It's Paul. I think I have it on the thing. There's my email address. Take a picture of it if you have a phone. Or if you desire to grab coffee or you have questions, honestly, like, I just want to point you to that right now. I just, I want to be able to answer questions you may have. We want to be able to come alongside you as you seek to journey with Jesus. And I'm just going to start by sharing my email address, and I might just point you to some other staff members uh, who, who, who might be better equipped to walk alongside you. But I just want you to feel like you're not a face in the crowd. You have a place to connect, and you have someone who wants to listen and walk along with you as you seek to walk with Jesus. Um, looking forward to sharing with you what God has revealed to me this week. Uh, hopping back into Genesis, we're in a text that I that I, I hadn't preached before, and as I got in the text, it was a challenging text for me. And I found myself really wishing I could walk across the hallway to Jeremy's office or Aaron's office or Brent's office or Mitch's office just to to bounce some ideas off of them. But uh, this is the week where we kind of have the offices closed at Heritage. And so I had no conversation partners. My only conversation partners were were theologians and authors. And so uh, uh, I'm looking forward to sharing with you what I have prepared for our message today. If it feels like I quote a lot of authors, it's because they were the only conversation partners I had this week. Before I jump into the sermon, pray with me. Father, thankful for the men and women who are here this morning. Thankful for the work you're doing in our church. Thankful for the work you're doing in our city and beyond. And I'm really thankful for the work you're doing in the lives of each person who is hearing this prayer right now. 
God, I thank you that you, uh, you're always at work in our lives, whether we realize it or not. God, I'm thankful to know that you're a God who, who uh, uses the mountaintop experiences, but it's really in those valley experiences where you shape us and form us and make us into the men and women you want us to be. God, I pray that as we open your word today, as we peer into your text, God, that you would speak to us, that you'd open up our hearts and our minds and our eyes to hear and see and respond in obedience to the things that you reveal. We love you. We invite you to meet us in this place today. I encourage you, if you brought your Bibles today, to open up to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be uh, actually going to read verses 24 to the end of the chapter. The text I'm preaching in actually is just going to be in 28, but I want to give us context. But before we get there, as you're turning there, I just want to, you know, as I was thinking about this text today, this, this is the text where, where we read that God made mankind in his own image. And I begin to think about what does it mean that we are made in God's image, and what does it mean that we are representatives of God on the earth and I, and I got to thinking about, you know, one of, the, one of the greatest blessings in my life in ministry over the last 20 years has been the work I did in my previous community as a police chaplain. I volunteered to be a police chaplain in my last town, and it was, it was, it was a fun job. It was a difficult and challenging role, uh, and, uh, and it's one, one of those ministries I was able to be a part of that, that just gave me tremendous life. Now, I'm not a police officer. But it's interesting that when I would go out as a chaplain, sometimes I'd be on ride-alongs with uh, some of the officers. Sometimes I'd get called to, to, to perform a death notification or to arrive at a death scene or be a part of a traumatic situation where I would go and offer support and care to officers in the community. And all the time I would get mistaken for a police officer and I'd be like, no, 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 no. I'm not a cop. I'm a chaplain. I remember one time I was on a ride-along and we pulled this young guy over for, for uh, driving erratically and and he ends up getting arrested for a DUI, and he gets in the back of the car, and he is just going off on the cop that had arrested him. Just every curse word you can imagine, and my cop friend is just sitting there taking it, and I'm, I'm in the passenger seat. And he looks to me, and he wants to start tearing into me. He's like, what are you supposed to be? I said, um, I'm a chaplain. He's like, what's that, like a detective or something? I'm like, uh, no, I'm like a crime-fighting superhero, but with religious purposes. No, I didn't really say that. I was like... I was like, uh, no, like I'm a, I said, like, I'm like a pastor to the police department and like the community. And he got real quiet. He's like, bro, I'm so sorry. Like, I shouldn't have been cussing at the cop. And, and I'm so bad. Like, I'm like, your mom, I'm going to call your mom after we get, and we had this great conversation. But I would often get mistaken for a police officer, um, but I wasn't. But here's what I did take very, I took very, very, very seriously that I recognized that when I was operating in an official capacity as a chaplain, I was a representative of the police department. So when I would do that horrible ride with an officer and we pull up to the front door of a home where we had to notify next of kin that their loved one had, had died, I recognized that those few moments were some of the most, the, the, most uh, the hardest, most difficult, most horrific moments in people's lives. And when I would knock on a door and I would have that conversation with families, I recognized I was a representative. When I would go to a death scene and there was a family grieving and I was ministering to the family, I recognized I was a representative of the police department. I wasn't a, a police officer. I represented the police department. I also represented God. I recognized when I stepped out into our community from that capacity, I, I was ministering in the name of Jesus, and I, I wanted to extend um, and uh, be a, an eternal witness to Jesus Christ to the community that I served. And there's this picture of being a representative that we see in our text today. 
we are to be representatives. We are to be images of God as we, as we open up Genesis chapter 1. A little bit later today, I'm going to be meeting with our shepherding elders. There's about 13 shepherding elders that are a part of Heritage Christian Fellowship. These are men who have taken on the responsibility of caring for, of shepherding, and of loving the, the covenant members of Heritage Christian Fellowship. And we meet once a month, and today we're going to be going through um, some material. We're, we're going to be developing and training ourselves to, 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 to better hone our, our craft and prepare ourselves to best care for the people of Heritage Christian Fellowship. And, and the book that we're going to be going through is actually this book right here. It's called The Art of Pastoring. And the author of this book, his name is Dave Hansen. He, he writes uh, uh, in this book, and, he, and what he says is, is the pastor or the shepherd is to be a parable of Jesus, a representative of Christ, a very, uh, that we are to be a living metaphor that points people to Jesus Christ. Here's what he says. He said, I have discovered that when I follow Jesus in my everyday life as a pastor, people meet Jesus through my life. You could say that with anybody. It doesn't have to be even, even a pastor. You could say, I've discovered that when I follow Jesus in my everyday life, people meet Jesus through my life. He continues. He says, this is not a new idea. It's a simple observation, perhaps the most basic principle of evangelism, that we lead people to Christ through simple lives of love. The thesis of this book is that people meet Jesus in our lives because when we follow Jesus, we are parables of Jesus Christ to the people we meet. As we step back into the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, we're jumping into the middle of the final day of creation. Day 6. Verse 27 that Pastor Jeremy taught way back in November reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. And as we look back at what Jeremy taught where we left off, Jeremy, he, he, he talked about how we are made in the image of God, and, and this is why we are to care so deeply about why life matters. And, and, and care so deeply about what we do and how we live and how we love as image bearers of God. Let's pick back up Genesis chapter 1. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 24 and let's read through the end of the chapter. Let's read the entirety of day 6 of creation. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps along the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. As the only ones in all of creation to bear the image of God, in verse 28 we see God speaking a unique blessing over his unique image bearers. God blesses them 
And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves along the earth. This verse, verse 28, is often referred to as the cultural mandate. I encourage you, if you take notes, to write that down. This is often referred to as the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate has been defined as the ongoing charge to humanity and the power and blessing of God to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and to gently subdue and cultivate the earth. As God's unique creation, God has mandated that his image bearers, humankind, we are to bear his image for a specific and prescribed ways over the entire face of the earth for his glory. You know, as I first started to engage this text this week, as I mentioned earlier, I was really wishing to have some conversation partners because some big questions rose up in my mind. And I'm going to share these three questions, and my hope is that as we journey through the sermon that I'm going to answer these three questions for you. The first question I asked was, does the cultural mandate apply to Christians today? This was spoken to the first humans however many millennia ago. Does this mandate apply to Christians today was the first question I wanted to answer. The second question I have is, what happened to the cultural mandate when sin entered the equation? God is speaking to sinless Adam and Eve here. A couple chapters later, sin enters in and messes the whole thing up. So what does sin do to the cultural mandate? And the third question I wanted to answer is, how does Jesus change the way we think? about this cultural mandate. So does it apply to Christians today? How did sin affect the cultural mandate? And how does Jesus inform the way we think about it today? I hope that we'll be able to answer those questions. But first, let's just take a few minutes to catch up where we were. It's been over a month since we were in Genesis. Uh, we, uh, we started way back on November 8th, um, and we went through the six days of creation, and we, we ended halfway through day six uh, on November 30th. Now, if you remember, we were looking at this forming and filling motif that, that exists within the days of creation. Day one, God formed light and, and, and separated the light from the darkness. And then day, in day four, uh, God created light barriers, uh, uh, the sun and the moon and the stars that filled the light. Day two, God formed the sky and the waters were separated. Day five, the sky and the waters were filled with living creatures. Day three, dry land was formed and vegetation appeared upon the land. And day six, land animals and humans were created to fulfill and they had all the things they needed to sustain their life, forming and filling. As day six begins, God creates living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and God sees that it's good. And then in church, verse 26, God turns his attention to the creation of humankind and, and the, just the tenor of the narrative changes. One scholar notes, God had formed the world in three days and now in the three parallel days he had wonderfully filled it with the light of the sun and moon, the stars, the trees, the plants, the creatures of the deep, the winged creatures of the sky, and a zoo of wondrous earth-treading beasts. Creation was fully ready for its ultimate fullness with the creation of man. Here in verse 26, the narrative slows down during the sixth day, like slow motion, because it is here with the creation of man that we come to the apex of the narrative. God said, let us make man in our own image and in our likeness. And then he makes man in his image and in his likeness. Verse 26 states what God is going to do. And then verse 27, he does it. <laughs> he makes man in his own image. And then in verse 28, he begins to endow humankind, these, these image bearers of his, with dominion. And it's interesting because in verse 28, it's for the first time in Scripture we see God speaking to humankind. He goes from speaking kind of generically to himself, this, this dialogue that's contained within the Godhead, and here in verse 28, he turns to Adam and Eve and he speaks directly to them. 
And God blesses them. It tells us in verse 28, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down. This is the heading under which our next three points are going to fall. God blesses his image bearers. God blesses his image bearers. That's the first point. Previously in Genesis 1, God had blessed the birds and the fish. On day 5, he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And then as we skip ahead into Genesis chapter 2, God blesses the seventh day, the Sabbath day. He makes it holy. And as we think about blessing, it's a major theme within the book of Genesis. This is the word barak. It's Hebrew for blessed. It appears more than 330 times within the book of Genesis. And as we journey through, we, we see how God is not only blesses in chapters 1 and 2, he blesses in chapter 5, verse 2. He, he's, he's reiterating his blessing to the descendants of Abraham and Noah. Uh, in Genesis chapter 9, as Noah gets off the ark, God blesses Noah, and he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis chapter 12, God blesses Abraham, and he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In Genesis chapter 26, uh, God blesses Isaac, and God says to, to Abraham's son Isaac, I will be with you and will bless you, for to you and your offspring I will give all these lands and will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. In Genesis chapter 35, God blesses Jacob. So we see Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And when God blesses Jacob in Genesis 35, 11, he says, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And so as we look at this first blessing in Genesis chapter 1, the first blessing of humankind, it's the establishment of a pattern of God blessing his people. And this pattern continues long into the book of Genesis and throughout the pages of Scripture, long after sin enters the equation in the fall of the human race. So let's look for a few moments at the details of this blessing. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. If you're a kind of person that likes to underline or highlight in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline or highlight the words fruitful, multiply, and the phrase fill the earth. God's blessing is that human beings will be fruitful. He blesses them to be fruitful. He blesses them to multiply and fill the earth. This is a picture of ultimate human flourishing, a flourishing that's intended to expand to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. This is his will for humankind. And here's the second thing I would encourage you to write down. God blesses his image bearers to flourish to the ends of the earth. God blesses his image bearers to flourish to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. I tried to encompass the, 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 the idea between fruitfulness and multiplication and filling the earth, and I chose the word flourish. To flourish is to grow or develop in a healthier, vigorous way, especially as the result of a particularly favorable environment. God had spent five and a half days creating the optimal environment that his crown jewel could flourish. They could be fruitful, and they could multiply, and they could fill the earth. God has blessed his image bearers here with a unique responsibility to flourish to the ends of the earth, to grow and develop into healthy, vigorous image bearers of God. And God's favor rests upon his creation. To understand the full implication of this, we need to understand how incredible it is that human beings, and Jeremy really unpacked this well on, in our, our sermon on November 30th, we've we got to think how incredibly profound it is that God created human beings to bear his divine image. It's an insane thought. I read this week from one theologian. In the ancient world, images were not pixels in paint, but more typically like what we think of as statues and monuments. 
Pagan religions employed such carved images as physical, visual representations of otherwise invisible gods. So in the the time that Moses would have written these words in the ancient Near East, uh, kings who, who would have fancied themselves as being divine would have set up statues of themselves across the land to manifest their sovereignty over the kingdom. As the original audience would have first heard this, this teaching that, that, that mankind is created in the image of God, they would have understood that as they reproduced and filled the earth, they would be representing the sovereign creator and his creation. That's the idea behind the cultural mandate. We are representatives of King Jesus, of creator God. Like an inanimate statue is made in the likeness of an earthly king and it thus represents the human kingdom, the animated, living, created creatures fashioned by God to uniquely bear his image represent the eternal and divine kingdom. And it's into this ancient Near Eastern culture that Moses is writing. It's into this context that the voice of the one true God rings out at the end and the climax of the days of creation where God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. This would have been revolutionary to the original audience. It's revolutionary to us. It's just that we've been exposed to this teaching for so long, it's normative to us. But if we're able to remove ourselves from just, hey, yeah, I've heard that before, and we just begin to think about what's going on here with us being created in the image of God, it's mind-blowing. One author writes, while fallen men make images of their gods, the true God made man his own image to image himself to the world. Humans are living, breathing, speaking, singing, serving, moving images representing the invisible God in this world so that others would remember and revere God. One writer says that God made us to image him, to show him, to point him, to display him. As you take stock of your life today, as you go and you replay the, the videotape of the last year of your life, as you replay your living and your breathing and your speaking and your singing and your moving, is it showing him to others? Is it pointing others to him? Is it displaying God to the world around us? God has chosen to use humans to show other humans what he's like. Isn't that crazy? God has chosen humans to show other humans what he's like. And as his true image bearers, as we reflect through our words and deeds, the love and acts, and the services of God, other humans are going to engage the character of God. And as people, as God's people image him to the world, the world will come to appreciate and adore God for who he is. We are to be parables of God. Have you ever had a humble, kind, godly, patient soul be a parable of Jesus to you? Have you ever had, perhaps you're, you're blessed enough and lucky enough to have a parent who loved you with godly patience and forbearance and long-suffering as a parable, as an image of God. Perhaps you've seen a, a craftsman who worked with deep care and concern the quality of their work. Or maybe you've worked with a laborer who, who works with a, a, a conscientious diligence, a punctuality, a drivenness. Maybe you've seen an artist who, who, who takes deep care to share their gift and thus the beauty of God. Maybe you've had the opportunity to walk with a pastor who has been a parable of Jesus to you in your life. Now, the guy who wrote this book, Dave Hansen, the irony is, is that he pastored me as a kid. He's the guy that baptized me. I didn't know Dave wrote a book until I was 27 and I was a pastor. I was sitting in the office of a gentleman who had become kind of the most influential pastor in my life, 
and he asked me some questions, and I asked him some questions, and he ended up saying the book that most shaped him in life was this book called The Art of Pastoring by David Hansen. I said, David Hansen, that's interesting. That was the name of my pastor growing up. And he says, well, the guy that wrote this book actually pastored a church in Montana. I said, shut up. And I grabbed the book, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a book written about the church I grew up in. This is crazy. And, and it's funny, because I read the book now, I'm like, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, I know that girl. That's crazy. And, and so Dave wrote this book, and he pastored our family for nine years, from 1983 to 1992. In the time in my life, when I was in my most formative years, he was the pastor to our family. We weren't super involved in the church. But he was our pastor. He officiated my sister's wedding, my brother's wedding. He baptized me. He walked my family through some difficult times when my mom was struggling with some addiction and was in and out of rehab. And then Dave moved away, lost track of him, found out all these years later he wrote a book. Fast forward another 10 or 12 years, and uh, a little about a year and a half ago, I, re I was able to reconnect with Dave and were able to start spark up a new friendship. And we're really blessed to be able to, to know him and, and talk with him and text him. Well, I'm telling you this story because it's his book that, shares, that, that kind of really unpacks this thesis of being parables of Jesus or being a reflection of God to the world around us. And my mom uh, has cancer, as I think some of you know. just found out about two months ago. She got a tumor in her lung. And then about a week and a half ago, she got COVID. So my mom was a lifetime smoker. She has COPD, and she has a tumor in her lung, and uh, she has, uh, gets COVID, and so she's 73, so we're, we're pretty concerned. So my mom's been in the hospital. She actually got out of the hospital, praise God. Um, but so and my mom was at her worst. I actually shot David text, and I said, hey, just want you to know my mom's not feeling well. She's in the hospital. So 28 years later, after he didn't pastor our family, he asked for my parents' phone number, and, and he calls my mom and dad to, to be a parable of Jesus to them, to be an image of God, to love them as God would love them. I got this text from my mom yesterday saying, I can't believe it. Pastor Dave called. He encouraged me. He read scripture with me. He prayed for me. This is what it looks like to be an image of God to the world around us. I read this week that images glorify. They bring to mind someone great and reveal admirable, praiseworthy traits so that we honor the imaged one. This is why the theme of man in God's image is so profound in Scripture. So God blesses his people, and he says to them, be, be fruitful. To be fruitful, this word means to just simply to bear fruit, to, to, to branch out, to be fruitful. And as I, as I heard of that, I was reminded of Psalm 1. Do you remember Psalm 1? The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The picture of fruitfulness is connected to an abiding, a connectedness to, to, to God and to his law. Jesus uses another metaphor in the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Jesus says, abide in me, remain connected to me, abide in me, and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, I in him, he is the bear. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So there's this picture that, 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 that fruitfulness is connected to our closeness with God, our connection, our, our abiding in Him. And as we connect to God, as we abide in Christ, then God, by the power of His Spirit, produces fruits in our lives, the fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the things God does in us. This is the fruitfulness that we're talking about here. God's fruitful image bearers are to multiply and to fill the earth. People are to be living, breathing image bearers of God to the ends of the earth for the glory of God, which means that humans 
are to fill the earth. This isn't simply a physical mandate. It's a spiritual mandate. This isn't just about procreation. This is about worship, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. As we read this blessing, it can raise some questions to multiply and fill the earth. Sometimes people have read this to simply mean that this is a command just to, to have children. Is this solely a command to have children? Is God chiefly concerned here with the procreation of the human race? I mean, certainly children are a blessing from God. The scriptures attest to that. Raising children to know and follow Jesus is of utmost importance. And we are to raise up and send out our children as missionaries for God who live their lives for the glory of God. But if we see this blessing is simply a mandate or a command for Christians to bear children, we run, we run into some problems. Perhaps the most profound problem is that Jesus didn't have children. Jesus had no children. And since Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, since Jesus never sinned and stayed within the perfect will of the Father, this clearly isn't a command that every person must have children. I mean, Jesus perfectly glorified the Father, and he was never married, nor did he ever have kids. On top of that, Jesus actually, he said that chastity was a viable lifestyle choice. He neither elevated chastity above or, or marriage and children above one another. They're both viable lifestyle choices. Secondly, the Apostle Paul, he, he encouraged singleness, non-marriage. He said that the one who is single can devote their entire lives to the service of God in 1 Corinthians 7. And these are inspired words in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and they push up against the notion that marriage and childbearing is a direct command of God. And I'll be honest, I've been in the evangelical church for a long time, love kids, I'm a dad, I'm married, I love my kids, I'm a grandpa, I love all of it. I think there's, we, we can make an idol out of that in the church. We have to be careful. Thirdly, infertility is a very real and present struggle for many. I've walked alongside many families who've had to deal with the searing and hidden pain of childlessness. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that the inability to have children is a curse from God. Nowhere in scriptures does it say that the inability to have children is a sin against God. Christians can live lives that are pleasing to God and glorify him whether they have children or not. Fruitfulness and multiplication takes place for the Christian especially through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the New Testament. Fruitfulness and multiplication takes place for the Christian when we abide in him and he produces fruit in us. And when we give ourselves to living out the implications of the Great Commission, we then multiply by going and making disciples of all nations. The truth is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate picture of what flourishing looks like. So any idea of what flourishing might be or might not be, it has to be stacked up against the, the gold standards of Jesus Christ. I read this week that Jesus is the measure of human flourishing. He brought flourishing everywhere he went. With all this talk about living your best life and living your best life now, hashtag blessed, all that sort of stuff, there might be some confusion as to what flourishing actually is. As we look at Jesus Christ, as we use him as the standard or the measuring stick of what flourishing might be, we see some things that might shock our worldly interpretation of a flourishing life. Flourishing is not having wealth. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. The only thing he owned was the clothes on his back when he was hung on a cross, and that was gambled away by those who watched. He was laid in a borrowed man's grave. Flourishing is not having a long life. Jesus died at a young age. Flourishing is not being popular. Jesus, in his final days, had massive crowds of people stand up and shout, crucify him, and they cheered as he was nailed to a tree. Flourishing is not being beautiful. The prophet Isaiah said of Jesus that he has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
So flourishing is not having wealth. It's not a long life. It's not being popular. It's not being beautiful. So what is flourishing? Well, let's look to Jesus again. Flourishing is living and operating with profound truthfulness and obedience towards God. Flourishing is attending to the needs of others, loving people with selflessness, the seemingly significant and the seemingly insignificant alike. Flourishing is attending to the needs of others. It's serving others in humility. It's giving yourself away. Flourishing is bearing the fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We are to flourish like Jesus flourished to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. God blesses his image bearers to flourish to the ends of the earth. Second point. As God experiences the blessing of God through fruitfulness and, and as humankind, rather, experiences the blessing of God through, through fruitfulness and multiplication and the expansion of the, the kingdom to the ends of the earth, God's blessing also involves his image bearers engaging in what some have called creation care. After he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he goes on to say, a, a little further in verse 28, subdue it, subdue the earth, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves along the earth. Pay attention to the words subdue and the word dominion. Unfortunately, when we hear phrases like subdue and dominion, we might interpret that as a green light to take advantage of or to, or to abuse that God has created. Christians have used these verses to justify all kinds of tyranny. It's a gross perversion of God's intent. My first job after high school, I was, I was a hooker in the logging industry. So I hooked logs. One of my favorite jokes. I hooked logs... In, a, for a, in Montana for a, for a logging operation. The guy that owned it was a very outspoken Christian. His kids went to this Christian high school. We played against them in, I, in, in my high school, and we, I would go to this high school, and he was just this, this glowing image of a Christian man, welcoming everybody. He was just like, he just really presented himself as a Christian man. And when I started working for him, I saw some of the most unethical practices. It was so disheartening for me as a young 17 and 18-year-old kid. So I'm stealing lumber, just could care less about environmental policies and practices that were in place to keep, you know, sediments out of streams. He was, and he would utilize his faith as a tool to manipulate, and he used it as a weapon for tyranny. But we, as God's image bearers, we are called to be careful in how we care for creation. Some scholars have said that this, this picture of, of subduing and having dominion is this image of gently subduing and having dominion over as God's image bearers flourish to the ends of the earth for the glory of God, part of that flourishing involves caring for this creation that we just read about in the first chapter of Genesis. So here's the second thing I want you to write down. God blesses his image bearers to harness creation's potential. God blesses his image bearers to harness creation's potential. Mankind is called and commissioned to be gardeners, to cultivate and care for creation. To harness creation's potential, which is a borrowed phrase, by the way. I stole it from a Bible project video. Another way to put this would be to say that mankind is to rule over creation, or we're to put our hand to creation care, or we're to cultivate and care for the world. I mean, as we look at the garden, the very creation that God had just formed for six days, we see it now being placed under the care of God's image bearers. Humankind is to harness and care for and steward the air and the water and the land and the plants and the birds and the fish and the animals, great and small. And we're to care for other human beings. We're to care for our neighbors. We're to love them in the way in which we care for the creation that God has given us. Mankind is to love and care for and to cultivate creation exactly the way God would do it if he were doing it himself. God loves his creation, and we are to love it as he loves it. 
We are to work and care for his creation. Have you ever taken the time just to read Psalm 104? Write that down. Just read Psalm 104. And you can just hear God's heart for the things he's created in Psalm 104. I'd read it, but it's long. And the blessing, this cultural mandate to harness creation's potential, it occurs, by the way, before the fall. This is before sin entered humankind and messed things up. God revealed that his blessed intent for Adam and Eve and for all humankind is to flourish and to work. Work is a part of this original design. Work existed before sin entered the world. Now the fall, of course, made work more difficult. God's blessed intent is the same for us today. We're called to work. We're to use God-given gifts and abilities to work within the world for the betterment of those around us. We're still called to do this. Mankind is to be God's vice-regent on behalf of creation. That word vice-regent, it's a person who acts in the place of a ruler or a governor or a sovereign. The ruler of the universe thought it fitting to have men and women alike serve as his vice-regents over creation. We are to serve over creation. We're to harness its potential. This means to be in the image of God is to share in his attributes. And one of those attributes is lordship. We have lordship over the things God has created. And in so doing, we're to reflect God's character in the way we harness creation's potential. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says, We are called to reflect the character of God's righteous rule over the universe. He never ravages or exploits what he rules, but rather reigns in justice and kindness. As we look at the raw material of the world around us, we recognize that God has endowed us as his image bearers with a unique responsibility to care for these raw materials, for this creation. Christians today are to rearrange the raw materials of creation to say something of God that will bring him glory. My father was a logger for 39 years. And I remember in the early years, my dad, you know, he just wanted to make money. We were poor and he needed all the work he could get. And I don't think he gave a whole, a whole lot of thought to what uh, the impact of his vocation had on his commission or his mandate to care for creation. But it was really kind of cool. The older my dad got, he kind of became this wise old sage in a dying industry. When my dad was in his 50s and the logging industry had died in Montana, there was just a few guys who were still hanging on. My dad was this old dinosaur that everybody knew. When I would go work on a job, when I would hook logs, like everyone would want to tell stories about my dad. Some, some of them weren't so flattering, but they would tell stories about my dad. But it was really cool for me. Towards the end of my dad's life, he really began to recognize that his work was important, and he realized that he also had the potential with his work to, to create damage and to, kind of, and to kind of do something that wasn't going to be beneficial to the environment. And so he became one of these guys that really enjoyed working with foresters, and he enjoyed kind of thinking and dreaming and working with foresters on how to care for certain sections and how to make sure that the, the, the forests were being managed. Uh, and, and there's, you know, to, to not care for creation, in my estimation, would be both to, to cut every stick and then to not manage the forest on the other end. There's, there's a responsibility to cultivate the forest. My dad got that towards the end of his, his career. But And I think men and women that work with their hands, that work with the actual raw material of the earth, agriculture, and and the kind of work where you actually have your hands in the dirt, kind of get this on on a very basic and a very fundamental level. But the reality is, no matter what kind of work that you do, all work is tied back to raw material on some point. All work on some level is harnessing creation's potential. Listen to what Mark Knoll says in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. He writes, Who formed the world of nature? which provides the raw material for physical sciences. Who formed the universe of human interactions, which forms the raw material of politics, economics, sociology, and history? 
who is the source of all harmony from all, all harmony, form and narrative, which nor who is the source of all harmony, form and narrative pattern, which is the raw material for art? Who is the source of the human mind, which is the raw material for philosophy and psychology? Who, moment by moment, maintains the connection between our minds and the world beyond our mind? God did and God does. All work, all work, I don't care what you do, all work, all vocation on some level is tied back to creation care, to stewarding, to harnessing creation's potential. No work is insignificant. All work on some level serves to harness creation's potential. We were created for this. As God's prized creations, the ones who bear his image, we are given the responsibility to steward his creation. We are to care for creation as his vice regents. So as God blesses his image bearers to flourish to the ends of the earth, to harness creation potential, thirdly, God reminds, God reminds those he has created in his image that he has provided all they need to live out this mandate. Look at verse 29 and 30. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree that with seed in its fruit you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So we see in this picture, God is saying, Behold, Adam and Eve, I've given you this mandate to, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to, to subdue the earth, to have dominion over the created animals. And, and behold, look, look what I've done. I spent six days. I've created all of this for you. Three times he says, I have given you. You shall have them. I have given. He gives them this amazing gift of the things he has created. He says, look at what I just created. You have everything you need to flourish to the ends of the earth. You have everything you need to harness creation's potential. All of your needs are perfectly met by my lavish provision. And here's the third thing I encourage you to write down. God blesses his image bearers to thrive amidst God's provision. God blesses his image bearers to thrive amidst God's provision. Notice that God says to Adam and Eve, I have given you. You shall have them. I have given. Our giving God provides for those he loves. God has provided everything necessary to flourish and to harness and to thrive. It's all part of this divine blessing. And so here we are. We see that God blesses his image bearers to flourish to the ends of the earth, to harness creation's potential, to thrive amidst God's provision. We, we've watched these six days of creation unfold. God formed light and separated light from day. He, he formed the sky and separated the water from, from the sky. God formed land on day three and the seas and vegetation on day four. He filled the sky with lights, the sun, moon, and the stars. On day five, God filled the waters and the sky with life and he blessed them. On day six, God filled the land with creatures great and small. And finally, God created his crown jewel, humankind the only in all of creation to bear his image. God blesses his image bearers to flourish to the ends of the earth, to harness creation's potential, to thrive in the midst of lavish provision. And with all of his work now complete, God steps back. He looks at what he's done. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was, every, and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And here's the last thing I'd encourage you to write down today. God declares it is very good. God declares it is very good. 
God wants us to see how good his creation is. That's why he says the word behold. The word behold is, is simply the word look. It's like God says, look, like step back. He invites us, step back, look at what he has created. Look at this. And it's very good. And yet, if you're like me, when I read this text, I see God's initial ideal for humankind. There's a bit of grief in my soul because I know the reality of Genesis 3. I know the sin of Adam looms. And we're left to wonder, when Adam sinned and death entered the world, did the cultural mandate die as well? If we look ahead to God's words, to, to Noah in Genesis 9, verse 1, we recognize the mandate didn't die. Because after sin entered the world, after God even destroyed sinful humanity with the flood, as, as Noah's emerging from the flood, God says to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He reiterates the mandate. So it didn't die. Sin has made our adherence to the cultural mandate difficult. Do you remember what God said to Adam in the curse in Genesis chapter 3? He said, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken and you are dust and to dust you shall return. So we, clearly this mandate for for harnessing creation's potential is made very difficult when the implications of sin are, consi are considered. A couple of those conversation partners I had this week had a lot to say about that. These authors that are smarter than me. One, one author writes, Unfortunately, our ability to mirror God's perfection has, severely comp has been severely compromised by the fall into sin. As we look all around us, we see that man still follows God-given drive to have dominion, but now he has, preferred, he has perverted that intent from a reign of servant leadership to tyranny. Another theologian observes, at the present time we have this horrible situation. In his sin, man either tends to, man either tends to dominate and thus violate the creation, subjecting it to his own selfish ends, or he tends to fall down and worship the creation, not realizing that his debasement is brought about in the process. The unfortunate thing is that when man severs the tie that binds him to God and tries to cast off God's rule, he does not rise up and take God's place as he desires to do, but rather sinks to a more bestial level. In fact, he comes to think of himself as a beast, or even worse, a machine. God created man to be holy. Adam and Eve in their original state were without sin. They were without blemish. They were perfect image bearers of an infinitely holy God. God created man to be holy, but today God is, or man is anything but holy. Man was created holy as God is holy, and of this original righteousness, not a vestige remains. Rather, as the scriptures say, every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil all the time. And so here we have this grief in our hearts. As a result of sin, the sad irony is that the words and actions of humankind display God more by way of contrast than by way of example. And it was exactly into this world that Jesus, the divine image of God, came. Jesus, the Son of God incarnate as man, is the image of God. The Apostle Paul makes this, the Apostle Paul makes this claim twice. In Colossians 1, he says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul writes, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
One theologian puts it this way. He says, the man Jesus Christ, not merely as God the Son, but as God the Son become man, is the great answer to Scripture's previously unresolved riddle of what it means at bottom to be in God's image. Humans are in God's image. Jesus is God's image. He is the full and complete embodiment of what it means for God himself to enter into a created world as a creature. Which means that God created the first man and woman in Genesis 1 and 2 in view of what he himself would be as creature in his image. When we would enter, when he would enter as a man in the person of his son. So you think about that. When God engineered the human body and spoke it into being, God was knowingly creating the very vessel within which the Son would perfectly glorify the Father as a creature in the created world. And that's what allowed Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 17 to pray to the Father, I glorified you on earth. But you know, it wasn't only the perfect life of Christ that glorified the Father, it was also in the laying down of his flawless life for the glory of the Father that we, flawed and fallen humanity, have the hope of salvation from the wrath that we deserve. Jesus glorified God in his perfect life and his sinless death. We might be restored to right relationship with God through Christ and conformed then to the image of Christ according to Romans 8, 29. When we're born again into the family of God, we are remade in God's image after Christ's likeness to glorify God. The more God conforms and sanctifies us, the greater the glory he receives. Our hope to live in obedience to this cultural mandate is wholly dependent on Jesus. God is at work in those who have trusted him. Paul writes about this all throughout the epistles. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, We have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam. We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. In Christ, the old sinful man of dust has died. The new life in Christ has come. We have a new identity. Those of us that have come to Christ, the old, dead, sinful self has been buried, and we have a new identity in Christ. We're born again into the family of God. And as we look in faith to Jesus Christ, the ultimate image of God, according to 2 Corinthians 3, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In Christ, we've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, and we're being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator, according to Colossians 3. So what then does it mean for us to now image the Creator? Here we are, like, I was talking to Don outside, and Don said, hey, so do you have the so what part figured out yet? Like, so what? This interesting stuff is so what? What's it mean for those of us in Medford, Oregon, January 3rd, 2021? What does it mean for us to now image the Creator? Well, as we put our hand to the work of the cultural mandate, as once dead people who had no capacity to image the Creator, who, who have now been made alive in Christ, who are being conformed into the image of Christ, we are made able by God to live out this blessed calling to image Him in how we flourish to the ends of earth, and how we harness creation potential, and how we thrive amidst His provision. And Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He was, he was envisioning his people, this remade people who reflect his image, who are being conformed to the image of Christ. Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That is what image bearers do. They shine as God shines through them. They, they bear fruit. They shine. They multiply. They shine. They, they, they fill the ends of the earth. They shine. They subdue. They have dominion. In so doing, they shine. As they shine, others see God and give glory to God. 
Isn't this what Jesus had in mind in the Great Commission? Isn't the Great Commission kind of a a, a different way to think about the cultural mandate? We taught on the Great Commission last week. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said. He says to, to New Testament disciples of Jesus who bear the image of Christ, Jesus says, the resurrected Jesus says to them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So the cultural mandate, Genesis 1, 28 says, be fruitful. But we think of that in a different way when we think of Christ. Jesus said, for those who abide in me, they will bear much fruit. Those who remain connected to me will bear much fruit. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always. Go bear fruit. Jesus, in his Great Commission, tells the church to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In the great, or in the cultural mandate, we're to multiply. What is multiplying but going and making disciples, people being adopted into the family of God? The Gospel of John tells us that all who receive Christ, who believe in his name, are given right to become children of God. The cultural mandate tells the the original humans to fill the earth. In Acts 1-8, Jesus says that we are to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. In the Great Commission, Jesus says we're to make disciples of all nations. When a disciple is made, they're born again into God's family. They receive a new identity as a child of God, and God begins to conform them into the image of Christ. The the Great Commission is the the way we now think through, through Christ of how we can begin to put our hand to the cultural mandate. It is these image bearers who are conformed to the image of Christ, who go to the ends of the earth for the glory of God, who put their hand to creation care, who harness creation's potential as an act of worship. And one day... And one day, Eden will be fully and perfectly restored for the family of God. As I first started the sermon, I had some good questions. Does the cultural mandate apply to Christians today? The answer to that is a resounding yes. As we've just seen, it is to be lived out as we give ourselves to the work of the Great Commission, as we put our hand to the work of missional focus as image bearers who are being conformed into the image of Christ. What happened to the cultural mandate when sin entered the equation? Well, it didn't stop. It just made it more difficult, which is why Jesus enters the scene. So how does Jesus change the way we think about the cultural mandate? Well, Jesus overcame the sin that so easily entangles us. And only in and through him does he conform us to his image and we're able to be obedient to this cultural mandate. So here's the last two questions I want to ask you to consider today. I started with the story of representing, how I represented a police department, but I wasn't a police officer. If someone was following you around for the last year of your life, they were filming you, your inner life, your outer life, your vocational life, your private life, and if you were to go back and replay the tape of your life, your thoughts, your actions, your deeds, your vocation, who or what is your life representing? Think about your life. Think about your social media activity. Think about your conversations behind closed doors and in front of people. Think about your thought life. Think about your church life. Think about your vocational life. Ask yourself, who or what is your life representing? Or to represent creator God. And that leads to the second question. This is more of a, just a basic question. It's where the rubber meets the road. To what end do you work? When you get up and you punch the time clock and you go to work, for those of you that are working, to what end are you working? I was talking to Pastor Jeremy this morning. He was talking to me about the, how the, the, the evolution of the thinking of the Puritans. And the Puritans were thinking, well, if we're all to reflect in Christ, to be image bearers of God, then that must mean we all have to be pastors. 
And they started to think about that. They're like, no, that can't be true. Like, if we're all pastors, who's going to build roads and homes and do the things that need to be done to cultivate creation? And so they came to this reality that, that it is our vocation. Whatever it is that we do, it is our vocation that is the very thing that we fill the earth with and give glory to God. What is your vocation? Are you a teacher? Are you a stay-at-home mom? Are you retired? Are you a construction worker? Are you white-collar? Do you work in finance? Are you, are you an entrepreneur? Are you a business owner? Are you a trainer? Are you going to school as a student? What is your vocation? It is that very thing that God has given you. You get to put your hand to the work of repurposing the raw material of creation to harness it for the glory of God. What might our professional lives look like if we begin to view them through this lens? God, when I step into my place of work today, I am doing the very thing you've called me to do. I'm representing you. I'm flourishing to the ends of the earth. And I'm harnessing creation potential for your glory. Let's pray. Father, thankful for this text. Thankful that you gave us some time today to think about it, to study it, and to reflect on how it relates to our lives, God. The reality is that we all have to get up out of these seats in a few minutes, and we've got to walk out into the world. And we can't live in the theoretical or the, uh, the realm of idea. God, you've called us to, to walk obediently with you. You've called us to, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, and to have dominion over creation. God, you've called us to, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to teach them all that you have commanded. And you've assured us that you'll be with us always. And so, God, I just pray as we think about this mandate, God, that it wouldn't just be an intellectual thing, that we'd think about what it looks like as we step out as your representatives. God, how can we, how can I better reflect you to the world around me? And God, as we put our hand to the vocation you've given us, the work you've given us to do, God, would you help us to be gardeners that harness creation potential for your glory and whatever work you've given us to do, God, may we fill the earth that people would behold your beauty. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.